Hi, I'm Shreen Vatek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to marketing leaders who are changing the industry one decision at a time. Be figuring out how to spend your ad dollars on platform, hiring the right talent, or adapting to the startup mindset. There's a lot to unpack. And joining me this week is Pete Blackshaw, Global Head of Digital Innovation Service and Service Models at Nestle. There's a lot of talk around nimbleness inside big companies. Legacy internal red tape can often stand in the way of operations, and the lessons of traditional marketing behavior can be hard to unlearn. That's been the responsibility of Pete, who has spent the last few years working on changing up the company's internal makeup so it can move faster. I talked to Pete about what big companies can learn from GTC Brands, his upcoming new role, and more. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You're in such a fun time right now. I almost feel sort of you're, you know, you're in your what last few days now at Nestle? Last few days in beautiful Switzerland. Amazing. That means you could just basically talk about anything and everything, right? (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Well, let's actually talk a little bit about, you know, what you're about to go do. Cause I think it it was interesting, you know, when, when sort of the news broke that you were, you were moving on from Nestle, that you were, you know, uh, going to lead centrifuge. Um, I think it was just interesting. I mean, I was kind of looking at it with interest because I think it said a lot about where this industry is moving. So tell us a little bit about kind of the move, what prompted it, what gets you excited about it? Well, it's a tremendous opportunity to help um, a region, but also a number of leading you know, global companies to enter the future. And it's a very unique circumstance where Procter & Gamble, Kroger, um, you know, Western and Southern, and a few real other really big companies have come together and said, we want to be the number one startup hub in the Midwest, even ahead of Chicago. And we need to organize properly. We need to attract VC money. We need to attract entrepreneurs. We need to figure out pillar strategies so that people would look at the region and say, aha, they can do it. Um, and the opportunity to lead that effort is a great, it's a great opportunity. And coming back to Cincinnati is uh, extremely unique. A little bit of a, a homecoming, wonder- right? Yeah, wonderful community. Even though I'm originally from California, I adopted Cincinnati. In fact, I did my first startup there, partly for the same reasons I'm going back there. I think it's actually a perfect place for um, value creation and new companies and even attracting VC, which I did when I um, had my experience there. But the opportunity to work with both entrepreneurs, because a big part of my job is to encourage people to start great companies, but also work with large companies that are trying to figure out how to better compete in a world of small ankle biter companies that are grabbing share from them, um, but are also reinventing business processes. I mean, you've just got and then kind of putting those two together is really exciting. And it and it and it mirrors a lot of what I've been doing at Nestle. I mean, right. a lot of what I've been doing here is not just your traditional, you know, leading digital and social media, but I've also spent a lot of time trying to help the big company think and act like a startup, created the Silicon Valley Innovation Outpost, really trying to figure out how do we embrace those startup principles to, um, you know, gain momentum and create new value in products and services. I think that's uh, that's actually a great segue because, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about for especially the last six months, and we've covered a lot of it, and it's definitely been one of, you know, what I call sort of one of our obsessions over here at Digitize. I mean, this direct-to-consumer revolution that is kind of, I, I think, sort of almost the most interesting thing to happen 
to businesses in the last few years has been this. I mean, this idea that, you know, Absolutely. people are coming in, um, at least on paper, they're saying, okay, we're going to strike out the middleman, obviously taking advantage of the great, great leaps in technology that comes to actually powering, you know, e-commerce, taking advantage of great leaps in technology with payment. Um, and and then how the legacy companies or the older companies are reacting to it. And I think Nestle has been a really interesting example of kind of saying, okay, we have to figure out a way to take what we know and also figure out a way to change some of the things we know. Walk me through a little bit of how difficult that actually is for a company as big as Nestle. Well, I think it's challenging for any large company of our size to kind of pivot aggressively in that direction. That said, there are islands of momentum, so to speak. I think one of them is Nespresso, where a significant percentage of the business is direct to consumer, also through the boutiques. And I think that has given us a lot of experience and know-how and confidence. But we've also been um, doing a lot of work in this area. In fact, we've uh, um, you know, we've uh, been leading um, a lot of different initiatives. We have a global head of, um, you know, e-commerce or what we sometimes call e-business, who's done some tremendous work in really opening up a lot of new territory skills and development. But it requires a different mindset, obviously one of speed. It requires a mastery of data. It requires a appreciation of personalization. It requires an understanding of the, the marriage between programmatic media and first-party data. And those things also matter with traditional digital marketing, but they're especially important in a direct-to-consumer world. And what's unique about the DTC space, and I'm going to be giving a lot of thought to whether Cincinnati can become a kind of a – that can be a pillar strategy because I do think there's a lot of incredible talent that can – develop the next Dollar Shave Club and the like, and even do that in a way that really complements the big companies. But, um, you know, you can actually go to market with DTC if you have a compelling value proposition and you really know how to work the data side. Um, you can do that, not on the cheap, but certainly at a significantly lower entry cost than a few years ago when we would start businesses from scratch. Um, so let's break that down, actually, just to begin yeah. with, because um, I'm interested in kind of, you know, how actually, yeah, it is sort of easier, at least on the startup end, right, to just do this now. What what has changed? Oh, I think the economic, I mean, you think about the DTC business, they don't have to, uh, you know, they start with Amazon, they start with Alibaba, they start, um, they start you know, directly through these channels versus working the offline channels. And I think that creates, um, if you have a, a successful strategy, if you really know how to build early advocacy, and you do see that with a lot of the small ankle biter firms, they're brilliant at getting reviews and generating word of mouth. They can get a lot of early traction that I think bigger companies kind of struggled with. But again, it does require, um, you know, different skill sets and, um, you know, for example, to, you know, some areas that I'm particularly passionate about throughout my career, you know, customer service, um, do that extremely well in an e-commerce context. You get the advocacy. The advocacy gets you the reviews. The reviews create viral effects. They credential your content. And that indexes in Google search results, and you're kind of in a very good um, position. Um, you have to be very I, – I, I think engagement extremely important in the context of um, – 
you know, winning today, uh, partly because even some of the players that start online and get incredible engagement vis-a-vis their Instagram accounts, they can use that currency to seduce retailers to give them offline distribution. And again, there's a um, there's a mechanic of winning and distribution that, and and certainly a speed that simply you never saw before in um, in the traditional kind of market rollout strategy. And I, what I, what gets me very excited is that, you know, working with startups and kind of knowing relatively quickly whether they're onto something. And if they're not, move aside. Let's do another one. And it's not like you're breaking the bank to get that early valid- validation. But the one thing um, that does kind of strike me about, and you sort of mentioned it quickly just now, you know, the Instagram. The I mean, so many of these companies as you know, as amazing as their products at least seem on Instagram, I mean, they're, they're so similar. I mean, there's so much, there's so much competition in sort of almost every category on DTC. And it seems to me that the big differentiator mm. in a lot of these companies is, is their marketing. I mean, in some ways, the product, they're all the products are good. All the products are great. And what's really setting them apart is how good their marketing is, um, how much money yeah, they're brand. spending on marketing, how good the brand is exactly. So it's almost like, okay, the cost for the setup might have come down and, you know, they've cut out the middlemen, they've made it cheaper and starting up is easier, but the cost of marketing seems oh, higher? Oh, absolutely. No, no, you're absolutely spot on. But yeah, the cost of marketing, but all I mean, the storytelling is also as important as ever. And I do think a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, small companies do that extremely well. Um, great service is not free. In fact, you know, you could argue that your cost to serve is actually higher in some cases in a DTC or an online environment, but it pays out in um, in very, very compelling ways through, you know, consumer advocacy and through, you know, positive testimonials. So, yeah, there are some areas where you definitely have to invest. And, yeah, I mean, DTC is not an end run on branding. Branding still matters, I think, more than ever before. But what we use to build brand, um, you know, may be different. Like, again, I, I think the advocacy piece is absolutely critical. And I frankly think it's where a lot of big companies, Nestle included, we've been a bit humbled by the small, you know, market share company that is, has more reviews on a, on a, on a relative basis than some of our big brands. And you take a step back and say, well, what's going on there? Where did they get the love? Yes, the products have to be great, but those brands also are very good at thinking about the experience. They may have a tie to purpose and values or sustainability that really, I think, ignites the passion and the brand advocacy of the millennials and the like. So all those things are really, really important. So so then let's talk about that because, yeah, so what happens when, you know, a big brand, you know, looks at something potentially in one of its categories says, oh, how is this happening? They've really earned this brand love. How how should and how do big brands then compete in this sort of world of DTC or this world of more ankle biters, I guess? I really like that term. Yeah, well, it. listen, I'm I'm a big believer, have been, you know, ever since I got to Nestle, that I think that brands are going to have to expand their value proposition. They're going to have to really think about service layers that sit on top of the core product. I do believe that, you know, the trend towards private label will continue to grow and brands are going to have to work really hard to differentiate themselves. In fact, I dare say a lot of private label products that we see out there offline or online are looking like pretty strong brands, right? And so therefore, 
the competitive differentiator beyond product performance may be that service layer. That's a big reason why I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, how do you marry up voice activation to recipes? How do you marry up, um, you know, uh, wearables to uh, a brand that, uh, you know, is closely linked to, you know, athletics? You know, how do you um, get really smart about, um, you know, bots or, you know, Q&A or acting like a concierge. That's my big, that's my big thing lately that every brand today needs to think and act like a concierge. What ha- you know, more and more people are coming to brands with questions. They expect guidance. They want how to, they want inspiration. And is the brand prepared to provide that? And I think those are the areas that may be a very real differentiator relative to, um, a lot of these other brands that are kind of creating this competitive area, but it is going to require a bit of a rethink. It may require a bit of a renaissance in brand thinking. It may require different org models. We may have to think about mashing up marketing and sales or um, and the like on a much more aggressive layer because the consumer experience cuts across both sides. Um but all of those are very, very important considerations that today's brand builder needs to take very seriously. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the mashing up, especially of sort of marketing and sales and a lot of just org changes that a lot of this yeah. um, new kind of economy is sort of necessitating. Um, I mean, one thing that at least that we've reported on so much and I've always heard is, you know, sort of, listen, everybody starts with great intention. Everyone wants to do great things, but sort of it's it's hard to make big changes happen in big companies. And that remains kind of the biggest struggle people at all levels of the organization are dealing with. Um, what did you find worked um, as you were kind of, you know, trying to make changes, trying to get things sort of going at Nestle? And um, what, what was the hardest part? Well, to fully answer this question, I almost have to go all the way back to my P&G experience because I helped start the first digital team at P&G. And, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of deja vu. A lot of these issues that we have related to organization, you know, they kind of they ebb and the, they flow. I always everything talk about is, what everything is just coming back, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I talk a lot about what I call digital dualisms, these tension points that are irresolvable. And one of the biggest digital dualisms is integration versus stimulation. You know, should digital be standalone? Should it be integrated into everything? And the answer is yes and yes. And we kind of beat ourselves up mercilessly at PNG on this very topic. You know, we also had the same tensions we see today between marketing and sales. Um, and although they're a bit more pronounced today, I mean, the sales side tends to be very focused on the performance marketing kind of sell today. Brand builders are like, hey, we still want the sale, but we're willing to give it more time. That's how branding works. And again, the truth is somewhere in between. Where it is interesting is that the consumer journey, and I think we've done some very good work um, at Nestle, give my colleagues a ton of credit for thinking this through, is really kind of mapping out that consumer experience that um, that really kind of cuts across the marketing and the sales side. And then you have to take a step back and say, how do you how do you unify that? And there's a lot of different models that have been tested. You know, both, you know, PNG and Nestle have been using the term e-business. This is a bit of an umbrella. Um, you know, is there a is there a sure formula? I, I think we're seeing a lot of different models. I think there's some very interesting questions um, you know, if you look at, you know, whenever I get specs for CMO jobs in different companies, <laughs> it's really interesting reading them because the, a lot of things that you would typically expect to see in sales are kind of in the CMO role. Huh, that's and interesting. Like, give me an on, example. 
Oh, gosh, I wish I had one of them right here. Oh, but just like the journey mapping, really kind of understanding, um, you know, branding in a mm. retailer environment. Sort of um, things that you were saying but more traditionally kind of, you know, at least back in the day used to be more on the sales side. And just you wouldn't really expect to CMO to be to be sort of involved in that, really, or at least have that as part of kind of a job spec. I think you're saying, listen, you're seeing, a, for, well, you're also seeing a lot of things coming from the top recruiters for kind of chief commercial officer or generating demand officer. And that's kind of a mashup of marketing and sales. So I don't think there's going to be a perfect formula, but I, I think it's a very important discussion underway about how marketing and sales come together and to kind of understand those uh, those tensions. I think that tension between performance and branding is a really super important one, um, especially as you're trying to maximize user experience. And we have all sorts of friendly debates within Nestle about, you know, you know, where do you put the buy now button? You know, um, you know, does that become interference or does that help the consumer? Um, on the other hand, are the marketers, um, you know, the br traditional branders, you know, not thinking aggressively enough about sales. And again, you just have to figure out where all this kind of maps together. And, um, you know, and, and I think over time, I think marketers are going to figure this out, but it'll be a bit ambiguous over the next few years, in my view. And I want to take a quick break here to tell you all about an exciting offer we have for you at Digiday Plus. Every week I tell you about the benefits of joining our membership program, the exclusive stories, exclusive research, invites to member events, and our quarterly magazine. But this time I have more. If you subscribe now, you'll get 18 months of free access to Business Insider Prime. Don't miss the offer. Find out more at Digiday.com and hit the Digiday Plus tab on the menu bar. Now back to the episode. The CMO job thing is actually really interesting, right? I mean, one thing that we've we've had a lot of kind of, you know, traditional sort of CMO roles on this podcast before. And one thing that I'm always struck by is how many of them, you know, talk about how their jobs and their requirements have changed over the last couple of years. And tremendously. Tremendously, right? And one of the things, though, that always surprises me is that when some of them are like, well, now, you know, more and more they feel like there is an expectation that, you know, marketing is, uh, is drives kind of revenue and that there's just sort of more mm -hmm. um, pressure on them on that. But also at the same time that they are having to learn things and know things that they just, you know, five or those of them who've been around for a long time, sort of five or 10 years ago, they never would have. I mean, CMOs kind of now have to know so much more too, I find. Sure. I mean, I, listen, I think data, well, data has always been important. I mean, when I started at PNG, I felt like I was like drowning in data and analytics, but I do think there is an, there is a a level of data mastery. I mean, we talk about data scientists, but I kind of think everybody in branding has to have some layer of that. We need to learn how to market to algorithms, which is totally different than when I came out of business school. Um, personalization, personalization. Personalization's always been very important, but now we can do it at scale and at different phases of the consumer journey. And so that, I think, is bringing a different level of sophistication. And then just there's a tech mastery. I mean, hey, it's I mean, I'd love to say I've mastered it all, having done this for quite some time. But I get pretty intimidated every five minutes. There's another tech platform, a new tech capability, maybe a little bit of tech paranoia that we all need to manage and filter through our consumer lens. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a brave new world for CMOs. No question about it. What is, um, how does then this kind of, I think there's also this need for CMOs to kind of take back a lot of control. I mean, you sort of mentioned sort of algorithms and all that. And I think the pendulum that was kind of swinging for the last couple of years or the last five years and sort of almost the power was resting, I felt, with like the platforms and, um, yeah. and you know, it feels like the pendulum's coming back. Well, I think what's important is that CMOs and just brand leaders 
you know, even the sales leaders kind of get in front of the consumer needs. I think there's some very, very important questions that are emerging. In fact, this is shaping some of my thinking about where I think Cincinnati might be able to lead the industry. But uh, there's a lot of trust issues. There is a lot of paranoia about the platform. There's all sorts of regulatory stuff taking place, including in Europe, GDPR and the like. And a lot of it is very, very legitimate. Like, and the how paranoia do we define... is, I was going to ask, the paranoia is justified in many cases. Sure. I mean, listen, you and I feel it all the time, right? Even though we're, we're kind of advocates for the future of marketing, our consumer side is always dissonant about this. And so, yeah, you know, where do we... Uh, you know, uh, you know, what is proper disclosure? Um, what is, you know, do we really know what's behind the privacy policy, right? Um, and can we, can we, can our mobile devices even possibly tell us that, you know, get us through the fine print? You know, how do marketers drive that bargain? Again, everybody's talking about first-party data, right? Well, that means there's going to be a lot of competition for that first-party data, and that could spell trouble for the consumer from another bombardment. I mean, marketers are notorious for, you know, re-energizing spam. It's like, it's okay, you know, there's always that. Publishers are too, so. Publisher, no, yeah, exactly. Well, we're all kind of, we all dance We're all together, responsible. Right? Yeah, we're all kind of dancing together. So, um, yeah, but I think there's some very important questions. Like, for example, I thought, you know, I, you know, I've reread the speech by Mark Pritchard like 20 times. I you know, participated in some discussions with Keith Weed from Unilever and Khan. And there there's some very important CMO level conversations taking place about trust, disclosure, um, you know, shills in the influencer space that yes. aren't disclosed. And I think that one very, very important item for the CMOs to take back, even from the platform, is this issue of trust. And if we can win on the trust front, this industry is going to grow, it's going to thrive, everyone's going to do great. If we don't, then everything's going to slow down. And I do think we're entering a very, very tricky period in marketing. And one of the things I'm going to be thinking about in my role as CEO of Centrifuge is how can we encourage and cultivate startups that can maybe get ahead of some of these issues? Because hmm. um, I do think there's some gaps um, we've worked a lot with the company Moat, which does very good, you know, viewability verification. There's probably another three or four Moats that are going to be started out there. Sure. And maybe those are the types of companies that we can think through. I think there's some very, very complicated issues with kids and technology. How far does it go? I just led a session at my kid's school on this, and I've never seen an issue that is so animated, parents, teachers, and kids alike. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. There's work to be done here. I'm not sure what it is, but this is where I think the marketers need to really lean in. Tell me, on that, though, I mean, I think that is interesting because you are seeing a lot of companies and technologies kind of coming up and developing developing amazing kind of solutions to a lot of these problems. I mean, trust, brand safety. I mean, you've seen kind of what, like you said, the moats of the world um, almost sort of indispensable right now, right? At the same time, though, you know, it almost does feel a little bit, and we actually just wrote about this, but I mean, however many issues there are with the platforms, however many issues, you know, like you said, with kids and um, what's happening sort of on YouTube are happening. CMOs overall, I mean, you're not going to, they're not going to pull spend. The big brands aren't going to stop advertising on the platform. So is kind of the solution then, in your view, you know, helping create and support companies who will then just make the process cleaner and easier and transparent and more trustworthy? I mean, we're sort of almost letting yeah, the platform listen, I'm not, say. 
yeah, I think I'm much more in that camp. I'm not saying pull money away from the platform. I think the platforms are are very important. And to some extent, you know, advertising follows attention. Attention is on the platform. You can't ignore them. But there are, you know, ways of working with them that protects the integrity of the space. We all have a vested interest in a trusted space. And, um, you know, and, you know, for me, this is a, you know, this is kind of a, a, a very, uh, you know, um, important topic to me before I came to Nestle, I was the chairman of the uh, the National Better Business Bureau. And so trust systems, I know, kind of power, um, you know, uh, business effectiveness. It's a currency for for business. And, and I just think we're in a complicated space. And I and again, I see opportunity. I look at it from, OK, well, there are some opportunities and I'm and if some if some startups wherever they're started come up with new approaches to this I certainly hope that I can encourage big companies to test and potentially give it validation uh, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of the agency you know where the sort of the agencies play a role in in, in some sure. of this too um, you know part of the big power or the part of the big pendulum kind of coming back has been this increased focus on um, Mm in-house, increased focus on us them saying that, brands saying that, hey, listen, we're going to do a lot more ourselves. We realize we're the best people who know our brand. And um, I found that discussion interesting because it's also come at a time that agencies are going through sort of a lot of troubles in the market of their own. Where do you kind of see this shaking up? Well, listen, I don't, this is going to be Pete's view. I don't want to necessarily represent Nestle's official position. Which is why you're in this fun place right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of in this transitional mode. But listen, I mean, I do acknowledge everybody's having that discussion. Do I believe there are efficiencies that big brands and companies can bring to producing content at scale? Absolutely. I do think e-commerce is opened up that discussion in a very thoughtful way. And can it extend into other forms of creative? Yes, I think so. I think on the flip side, I do think agencies properly organized and with the right value proposition and talent can bring a tremendous amount of value to the table. I do think they bring a devotion and a discipline to the brand. Sometimes I find that they know our brand better than our own brand builders because they've got that historical connection to them. And I think as the prerequisites of storytelling increase, and they will when you think about all these new areas that are opening up, AR, VR, voice, I mean, those creative partners may be one of our most strategic assets. So we're going to have to figure out how we properly balance it. And I'm pretty bullish on that. In fact, I hope to cultivate a couple boutique agencies on as well. I mean, I think, you know, so I, not I would writing love agencies to t- off at all. <laughs> no, no. Like, I think I would love to turn Cincinnati into a um, an AR VR hub, or what I like to call experiential storytelling, um, or multi-sensory branding, is going to be a huge space out there. I'm not sure your typical content factory is going to be able to push a button and get the answer on that. I think, and and there'll probably be a lot of failure there. I mean, we've all dabbled. You know, AR is really reaching a tipping point. Voice is really reaching a t- tipping point. These are sensory experiences, and we'll have to bring some world-class talent steeped in very deep consumer understanding to help brands figure this out and claim territory. So the answer is somewhere in the middle, um, but I'm certainly not giving up by, on agencies by any means. Uh, I was afraid in the minute, for a minute that there, you were going to start talking about the blockchain. No, 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 no. I'm resistant <laughs> of those. I think, I, listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm, 
cautiously bullish on that. I do think there's a massive amount of hype, but I do believe in, um, you know, the distributed distributed ledger concept. I'm actually really excited about uh, blockchain in the context of quality and supply chain, and we're participating along with other big companies in that area. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. And if I were to try to develop that in Cincinnati or try to encourage momentum, I would probably focus on that area first. And I think companies have real big needs on that front. So uh, before I let you go, one one question I did want to ask was, you know, if you hadn't decided to do this with Centrifuge, you know, sort of what would you have done instead? You know, it's a good question. I was getting a lot of uh, CMO opportunities. Uh, I love, I'm leaving a job I love. I mean, I love the family of Nestle brands and who, who can't get excited about living in Switzerland. I've thought a lot about, I'd start a lot about starting my own company, uh, and I had actually worked on a lot of business ideas, but I thought it might be a little bit too disruptive to do that right out of, you know, Now, now you've intrigued out. everybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was um, going to I, happen? But I, but, but, but I will. I mean, I, you know, I even told the board when I got the job, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a startup guy. I'm not going to retire into this job. I want to help get Centrifuge to the next level. Um you know, especially with the next fund that we're going to build. And, but eventually I may want to either start my own firm or maybe um, join one of these startups that I'm helping to cultivate, you know, bring a little bit more senior um, leadership to it. So, boy, but that's a long conversation. I am, uh, you know, uh, one of my managers at PNG called me an idea hamster. I do have a lot of ideas. <laughs> I admit it. I'm not afraid to admit it. And um, I have quite a few business ideas. And part of what I'm looking forward to in this new job is maybe passing some of that on to these entrepreneurs and then giving them the tools and the know-how to quickly validate whether they're onto something. That's the key thing, I think, is knowing whether you're directionally going in the right direction and if not kind of cut and bait and then starting from scratch absolutely that's what big companies struggle with in my view got it pete blackshaw thank you for being on making marketing thank you and that's all for today's episode thank you for listening our producers at the angle if you like the show please don't subscribe leave us a rating and a five-star review you can also reach out to me with your feedback tweet at me i'm at train or email me at thanks again for listening we'll be back next week with another episode